Welcome to the Social Shift Podcast. My name is Andrew and I'm your host. Today, we're talking to Nick Astor. Nick is the North American Marketing Director for South Pole, a global organization that works with companies to reduce and offset their emissions and consults with them on how to bring sustainability to more areas of their business. Let's get to the conversation. Hey, I'm Nick Astor. I am currently the Director of Marketing for North America for a company called South Pole. How did you end up there? What What's kind of the journey that got you to South Pole? Well, at the risk of uh, a very long story, I had a background in media, and which intersected with web design, as well as a great deal of interest in what we now call sustainability. I built kind of a career for myself, publishing at that point, what we called micro publishing turned into something we know now as blogging about those issues. Eventually was able to turn that into a business, had a couple of jobs in the meantime, and ultimately built that business out into a uh, company called Triple Pundit, which is an online uh, publication focused on sustainability for a business audience. That opened up a lot of doors for me taught me a lot about not only the business environment in general, but how business can and or should address sustainability, environmental and social concerns. Climate change is, of course, one of the primary issues in that spectrum. And long story short, I ultimately sold the company about three years ago, did a few independent things in the meantime, and got approached by South Pole to have a conversation about helping them with their growth in the United States. They're a Swiss company, and that sounded like a terrific opportunity, and I went for it. You mentioned something that I, I found kind of interesting is what we now call sustainability. When you started this, what were we calling it? Well, we called it environmentalism. If we were talking about environmental matters, we also may have talked about social activism. To me, those are very related issues. And to me, the term sustainability encompasses both both of those things. And for that matter, it also um, encompasses economic, I don't want to use the term growth, but the concept of the triple bottom line is this idea of balancing economic, social, and environmental priorities. To me, that fundamental balance uh, is what sustainability really means. But in those early days, things were a lot more siloed. There was a lot less talk about how they interrelated. And in fact, there was a lot of conflict because you would have the business community sort of saying, well, business is business and those environmentalist hippies over there, well, just keep them over there. And the environmentalist hippies over there were saying, well, business, they're just a bunch of nasty, evil capitalists and we don't talk to those guys. That dichotomy, which is a totally false dichotomy, plagued the environmental movement as well as the social justice movement for uh, a long, long time. And it's only recently that business has come around to realizing that it's in their best interest to at least understand their role in this bigger picture and it is certainly in the best interest of those of us who care about a better world to not dismiss business as automatically an enemy. What was your initial wake-up call to that caring about a better world? I suppose I always always had interest in, in these issues, so I, I couldn't point to a, a moment there. But I will tell you the wake-up call to understanding what I just described, that concept of the triple bottom line, that concept of that inter connectivity was probably the reading of the book Natural Capitalism by Hunter Lovins, Amory Lovins, and Paul Hawken, 
It's a classic of its genre. Came out probably 20 years ago now. Still quite relevant. And to me, that was probably a big, big wake up moment. What about that was the catalyzing factor where you went, okay, this is where I'm headed now? What, what I loved about it was that it was a solution to that false dichotomy, that pain that we experienced, or at least I experienced at that time, trying to figure out why did these business people think these causes were a waste of time? And why do all of these activists think that business is a waste of time? And that always bothered me. And that particular book and related books and my experience going to graduate school, which was related to that book, made me realize actually common sense when you really sit back and think about it can show a third path through those challenges. Historically, what have been some of the biggest hurdles to making the business case for sustainability? And how have you seen those start to kind of shift over the last decade or two? A couple of things. There's a moral component, which is there. But the most important component, particularly when it comes to, I think, American businesses, is the revelation that this is this is good for business. For example, you know, a company figures out that you, know, you treat your customers well, they're going to come back and be more likely to buy your stuff. You know, this is not rocket science. But also, you want to take some kind of action on energy use. Well, that's a lot of good reasons why you might want to do it. But at the end of the day, you make your products and operations more efficient, you're going to save money. And that's good for the bottom line. I would suggest that, you know, taking action on most issues in some way is going to benefit your bottom line. It may not do so tomorrow, maybe a more of a long-term proposition, but running an ethical and environmentally responsible business is better for business in the long run. And that's the fundamental argument. When you started Triple Pundit, did it kind of feel a little bit like you were broadcasting to brick walls a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. It was still new enough at that time. There were only a few other publications really sort of taking this angle. I didn't. I wouldn't say it felt like we were broadcasting to a brick wall, but I would say it felt like we were broadcasting to a limited group. However, it was very obvious that that group was both enthusiastic and growing. You know, every once in a while, we, we would be approached by somebody who read something or we'd meet people at events and so on. There was a tremendous amount of momentum towards growing this conversation. And that's really what we were trying to do is start a conversation, not necessarily provide answers, but start a conversation. And, you know, we were a lot of others were doing that as well at the time. But yeah, we were definitely part of that. And it grew. Aside from it being good business, what were some of the things that brought other people into the fold? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, good business is, is the point, but, you know, many factors. You have internal factors, you have em employees that have issues that they care about and want to influence. You may have leadership from the top that cares, you know, in the case of really particularly leading companies like Patagonia, for example. You also have customer pressure. Customers want price being the same, want to know that their products are not doing harm at the very least. And then, of course, you have investor pressure. And we have very pragmatic investors that take a long-term view, pension funds, groups like that, that are more concerned with where their money is going to be in 15 years than where it's going to be next quarter. And so when you have financial pressure that can sustain that long-term view, you, you may also have a, a, a better or easier time making changes that you know, could result in lower financial returns initially, but with a long-term view on that. How has it felt kind of seeing the work start to pay off? It's great. And I'll tell you a couple of cool stories. You know, we have a long way to go, no doubt. But 
it's really exciting. Everywhere I go, I go to restaurants, I find enthusiastic people looking for nutritious, local, organic food. You know, you even get on an airplane and they're talking about how they're offsetting their emissions and, and so on. Almost every company is at least paying lip service to it. Some, of course, are doing more than others. Right now, this is an interesting story. You know, we had COVID and this total disaster of the last year. And historically speaking, you know, when this first sort of little bit of a movement of sustainability started to gain traction, this is now probably almost 20 years ago, at least in the current iteration. As the economy went south, this priority was gone. Companies would ditch their sustainability department. Maybe they'd quit that investment in renewable energy they were going to make. For the first time, that's not what happened during COVID. Everybody stuck with their commitments. And at my new company, South Pole, we actually continued to grow all last year, which was amazing. And obviously that's great for our business, but it's something to feel really optimistic about. The fact that companies continued to come to us looking to invest in action on climate, that the pressure was still on to do that despite everything that happened with COVID. The only exception to that was probably the airlines, but they, they still stuck with their commitment. They just scaled it back for a year because, you know, they were on the verge of going broke. You know, almost everybody stuck with their commitment and in fact has even continued to double down on that. COVID was almost kind of a wake-up call for it, you know. It's a different type of problem. Some say climate change is kind of like a, a longer drawn-out COVID situation, you know, when it comes to the need to prepare and take action and hopefully alleviate it. What about the pandemic increased focus? Like we were all trapped in our houses and had nothing better to do. Because I, I know <laughs> that it felt for me that I was seeing like new ESG goals being announced by companies right, left and center every like 30 minutes. And so was it just already in the works or was it a byproduct of more focus being directed at that? I would say it was definitely already in the works. And what's interesting is that COVID didn't derail it. You would have thought that, you know, COVID comes in, oh, well, forget all that climate stuff. We got a, we got a pandemic on our hands. And to a certain extent, it did happen with people's attention. And yes, it was the more immediate problem that needed to be dealt with. But the reason I don't think it derailed and perhaps even inspired companies to stick to their guns is that partially it's just a risk thing. You know, we were caught with our pants down when it came to COVID. Let's not be caught with our pants down when it comes to climate. That means being pragmatic. And let's be honest, we're probably not going to be able to prevent climate change completely. So let's understand where the risks are. Perhaps we want to reevaluate that property we bought in Miami Beach, that kind of thing. Where are our facilities located? You know, insurance companies pay attention to that kind of stuff now. Assessing your climate risk is something that COVID may have been a big wake-up call to companies for. The extent that we're able to possibly stop the worst of climate change, which hopefully we're still going to be able to do, it's sort of inspiration on top of that basic let's alleviate our risk scenario. So talk to me a little bit about South Pole. You know, you, you kind of mentioned it that you guys ended up maybe busier than you thought this past year, but taking a step back, who are you and what do you do? Well, South Pole was founded 15 years ago now by a group of Swiss environmental engineers. It is most well known as a developer of carbon projects around the world. So that means we put into play all kinds of different projects that in some way or another pull carbon out of the air or prevent carbon from being released. Most of these are nature-based solutions, things like reforestation, ecosystem restoration, and there's a whole host of different types, but that we've got something like 700 around the world. And so that's the core of what we do. And then, of course, we're able to sell carbon credit to companies that want to offset their emissions. And then we also do a whole full suite of sustainability consulting, mostly with corporates. It feels like there is 
this renewed conversation around carbon and carbon offsets. Can you talk a little bit about the efficacy of them and and the pros and the cons, the realities and some of the wishful thinking that might need to be readdressed or the re-education that needs to occur with that? Well, the basic idea behind an offset or a credit, depending on what word you want to use, is that you as a company or even an individual, if you like, you know, you have a certain carbon footprint. First thing you do is you got to measure that. You got to understand it. It's X number of tons per year. And part of this is a little bit philosophical, but our recommendation and our insistence with the companies that we work with is the first thing you do is you try to address your footprint directly okay you make your operations more efficiently you fly less you do this you do that and at some point you get to a point where you still have a footprint and so how do you deal with that you can offset it which means you're going to purchase credits which correspond to an identical amount of carbon removed from the atmosphere by some other means thus neutralizing your activity achieving what we call net zero or carbon neutrality there's a little bit it's a little bit murky the nuance of some of these definitions is, but the fundamentals is the same. You're trying to basically get to zero emission. And that's basically it. I've seen some commentary that with all of the new plant-a-tree carbon offset commitments that we might just run out of square footage on the planet for all of the reforestation projects. Is there, you had mentioned that South Pole is in, engaged in a whole host of different projects. Can you talk maybe about some of the specifics of some of the other avenues by which carbon capture is happening? There's a lot. And of course, there's new ones being developed as well. What's interesting to think about is, well, you have technological solutions. Literally, there's a company called Climeworks, for example, in Switzerland that basically builds big machines that literally suck carbon dioxide out of the air, which is great. Bill Gates and people like that are really interested in these high-tech solutions. It's sort of the the Silicon Valley kind of way of looking at things. And there's a lot of them. They work. Their volume is very, very low at this point, and they're incredibly expensive. So to the extent that people like Bill Gates want to invest in that kind of stuff. We think it's great, but it's unlikely to scale quickly enough to come anywhere close to being able to address the full problem. But it's part of the solution. Nature-based solutions such as tree planting are also a very big and very useful part of it. There's a lot of land out there to plant trees and it's pretty cheap to do it and it yields some pretty immediate results. It's something that takes time and takes land and takes effort and, and so on. Other solutions are things like improved capturing, not so sexy solutions like capturing landfill gases at capturing methane at landfills and things like that all sorts of different renewable energy investment. Anything, and then there's some out there solutions improving the rate of carpool adoption in a city by commuters and you can quantify approximately what kind of carbon that might save and then that can actually be put into the equation. Another huge one that is probably a really big piece of of future projects has to do with agriculture, modifying the way we go about farming and possibly changing some of the way that things are plowed, the, the type of things that are grown, plowing certain things into the soil, even how we raise beef if grazed properly on wide open plains the way bison used to can actually be a way to sequester carbon into the soil. These different farming practices, and you you might even be able to engage with big ag if they get really into this, could also be a really big piece of the puzzle as well. So there's all kinds of different things. The idea is let's pull the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it somewhere, either if it's in a machine, if it's in the bark of a tree, if it's buried in the soil, or even in the ocean. We can talk about what we call a blue carbon project, which are things like restoration of mangroves and kelp beds and coral reefs. You know, that also can pull a lot of carbon into it. 
Do you see this sustainability trend increasing and just getting more effective or widely adopted? Or do you see that we've sort of hit maybe peak sustainability adoption and it might slow down for a little bit to see these companies who have invested in these efforts they're kind of hedging their bets to see if they work in the next year to three and then if they do like great then we'll pour some more money into it or if they don't then we'll figure something else out oh i think we're actually just at the beginning of this particularly as it concerns climate. You know, part of this is that this is based on what we've seen in terms of the the demand, not just because companies want to do it, but because, you know, they're being asked to do it by their various different stakeholders, by investors, by customers, and internally as well. On top of that, there's a very high likelihood that this, though, there will be some national government may get involved in this as well, and there may be some more regulation. And of course, companies want to be ahead of the regulation, so they're another reason why they may be proactive in advance of what might happen. Finally, I mean, it's a real problem and we're really starting to actually see the issue. I mean, we know what the symptoms are. It's stronger storms, flooding, it's droughts, it's fires, it's all this stuff that's been happening. It's not fear-mongering. I mean, we've been keeping track of this stuff in great detail for 100 years. Uh, and we have anecdotal evidence for many, many years prior to that. So we can recognize anomalies and repeated anomalies is a pattern and it very much fits with what we have observed. There are very good reasons to keep doing what we've been doing and accelerate it. Looking ahead three, five, ten years, what do you see as the potential for private public partnerships? Do you see private companies taking the lead? Do you see kind of as we just talked about, you know, regulation shaping what private companies are able to do? How do you see that dance playing out? Good question. As you know, the U.S. government has been pretty ineffective over the last, well, certainly the last four years. The good news is the private sector has stepped up and has led and has been very proactive about this. For the most part, you know, particularly on climate, has been taking action totally in absence of anything that the, the, the federal government has done. And that's good news in a way. But certainly if the federal government can get its act together and cooperate with this and pass the kind of regulations that m- make sense, then this can both accelerate and make life a lot simpler for businesses and so on. It's not really a right-left thing, at least it shouldn't be. You know, there are Republicans that definitely believe in climate change, um, although they're not as vocal about it as perhaps they ought to be. And now that we've rejoined the Paris Agreement, the question is, you know, whether we will ultimately have a price on carbon. And that can be done in a bunch of different ways, either through a tax, through what they call cap and trade, and, you know, whether or not our ability to trade with other countries may start to depend on treaties that are based on who's taking action and who isn't and so on. That could be a political mess or it could make things very efficient, depending on how it plays out. So that'll be something to watch for. But ultimately, we're likely to see most countries start to have certain mandates in place and, and so on. And if we're successful, you know, this will play out the way we dealt with acid rain in the in the 70s and 80s and the way we dealt with the ozone hole, you know, all of which were dealt, both of which were dealt with with a cap and trade on whatchamacallit, chlorofluorocarbons and sulfur emissions, respectively. And both problems were largely dealt with. What can we do to push or help shape or let people know like, hey, this is something that's important to me as a consumer? Well, obviously, you could Google a list of all kinds of things you could change. But my favorite answer to that question is straight out of this 
very pro-capitalist way of thinking, and that's vote with your dollars. When you go out and buy something or visit a restaurant or spend money, you're effectively saying, I approve of this business and how they operate. And you can have, we have varying degrees to which we can make that effective, but you know, try and do as much homework as you can on where things are coming from and who's producing your products. And this goes way beyond things like climate. I mean, this is about ethics and fair wages and you know all of the things that, that we care about. And the more you know about where your money is going, the more wisely you'll be able to spend it. If you were in a conversation with someone tomorrow who was business owner and, and sort of dancing around like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, you know, what would you tell them? What would be the case that you would make for them as to why taking action here is important? It kind of depends on what kind of business it is. A huge publicly traded enterprise is one thing. You know, a a small business is a little bit different because you have a little bit more tight with resources and so on. But at the end of the day, I would advise any small business to take some visible action. You can switch to renewable energy and tell your customers about it. That doesn't usually cost too much. You can switch to reusable or, you know, compostable material. I mean, here in Philly, we're still getting styrofoam when we get takeaway, which sort of appalls me, but there is a growing number of restaurants that don't do that and and make a statement about it. And that's where my dollars get voted. And all of those are relatively low cost, but highly visible things that can be done. And by and large, the average person might not notice or care, but a lot of people do. And you'll probably get positive feedback, which can only benefit you as a business. What's the future for South Pole? As you guys are continuing to grow and advise and consult, what are some of the things that you're excited about on the horizon? The company's been growing terrifically. We're really excited about particularly being able to grow in the United States. We've been a pretty well-known brand in Europe for some time, less well-known here. But A, we're really excited about being able to branch out into this new market and, and reach American companies, help the United States start to transform our economy to being a climate neutral economy, ultimately. And then also, I think we're quite excited about helping bring online new projects, particularly projects in the United States. One of the things I didn't mention about our projects in particular that is really interesting is that they often do a lot more than just remove carbon. One of the things that we're particularly excited about is deepening the understanding that a a carbon project is usually about more than just carbon. It usually has what we call co-benefits, and they can be anything from improving biodiversity, increasing flood resilience, economic development, particularly in areas of the global south where the economy may not be very strong, education for kids in the case of, of our cook stove project produce electricity where kids can you know do their homework at night with lighting that didn't exist before there's all this stuff that we bake into these products that goes way beyond simply pulling out carbon and being able to articulate that and, and share that you know makes the whole thing that much more interesting in my opinion there's kind of been a few mentions to like the u.s seeming to be behind the eight ball in a lot of things what are the reasons for that that it feels like the united states is behind on the innovation curve from a lot of european countries specifically you know i think it is and it isn't and that's a complicated question i don't have a simple answer for that somehow we're ahead of europe when it comes to covid vaccines surprised me So we did something right there. You know, we have a different way of doing things. You know, we're very business first. 
which is sometimes not a good thing and, and sometimes it is a good thing probably. Uh, that manifests in, in all kinds of different ways. You know, right now, of course, we have this weird nationalism brewing undercurrent happening, which hopefully has kind of died off for a bit, but who knows? You know, that also exists in Europe, so let's not pretend that they're immune to that sort of thing. I'm not a political scientist, so I hesitate to, to analyze it too much, but I think that we're both ahead and behind at the same time. And climate policy, we've been behind, no question about it. But in a lot of environmental policies and a lot of our social issues, we've been way behind. And I couldn't answer that question without talking for an hour. But I'll try to give a quicker answer. I mean, I think, you know, we have this obsession with independence. I think fundamentally, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's an entrepreneurial spirit that you don't necessarily find as commonly in Europe. But sometimes I think we are naive about the idea that independent is automatically going to take care of all of us. It causes us to be a bit myopic when it comes to some very basic social services that could be provided, for example, or not even socialism, they're basics. Addressing some of those issues could ultimately be better for our country as a whole in terms of social unrest, in terms of the economy, in terms of all kinds of other things. But like I said, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. We have this great independent spirit and also this sometimes our, our, our heads are stuck somewhere else. With all of the the good that's happened in the last couple of decades, what still keeps you up at night? Well, a couple of things keep me up at night. Technology keeps me up at night. I genuinely worry that we have gotten way too clever for our own good. I think that we seem to have found ways to make ourselves far more productive, yet somehow we have less free time. The fact that literally most of this country is hanging by a thread in terms of one paycheck down and they don't have food on their table. That really bothers me. The fact that most people in this country can't even afford basic childcare, now that I have kids, I get this. That bothers me a lot. Certainly climate change bothers me a lot. I think most of us will be able to, if we did nothing, I think we in the US, most of us would kind of adapt. I think if you live in Bangladesh, you're totally screwed. That bothers me a lot. A lot of people say, oh, well, who cares about Bangladesh? Well, people are going to have a major refugee problem. So if you've got issues with immigrants now, just wait. The, the, the general sort of political divide in this country keeps me up at night, bothers me a lot. I like to think we can build bridges, but there's some people that are pretty far out there beyond the reach of any bridge. And that's a major problem. In spite of all of that, though, what keeps you going? You know, I'll tell you what keeps me going is I happen to work with a lot of really smart, really good people. I've surrounded myself with a lot of real smart, really good people, all of whom are doing interesting things, all of whom, for the most part, seem to care. And, you know, you accomplish things and you feel good about it. So that keeps me going. To learn more about South Pole, head to their website at southpole.com or follow at South Pole Global or at Nick Astor on Twitter. The Social Shift Podcast is a production of Third Shift Creative. Come say hi online or start a conversation by sending an email to hello at thirdshiftcreative.com. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Social Shift Podcast, and we'll see you next time.